2: Hello, um, welcome to Off Air. Um, it's Garvey uh, on, her, on her own again. I mean, obviously, strictly speaking, I'm, I'm with a colleague here in a studio, but let's pretend I'm sitting here in splendid isolation. Um, Fee is still not too well, but we think she's on the mend and very hopeful that she'll be back on Monday. And next week, she's going to be presenting the Live Times radio show with Ed Vasey. Now, they um, they do know each other. They've worked with each other before, um, and I think it's going to be very interesting. So I, for one, will be listening from home on my Easter break, and um, that'll be well worth hearing. So thank you for all the emails about, as ever, a whole range of subjects. It's Jane and Fee at times.radio. Radio. Um, people are still writing. I think this is really interesting. Still writing to us about Paul Morgan Bentley. And his book about being um, a parent and being, uh, well, doing your best to be an equal parent. He parents with his husband. Um, My story of parenting, says Mary, began in 2004 when my husband and I met our daughter in a social centre in Vietnam. I've titled my email to you The Same Second Parenthood for this reason, i.e. we met her at the exact same moment. I had no additional biological attachment as a result. We adopted another little boy in 2008, again my husband and I meeting him at the same moment. We've had a 50-50 bit of care for them since. I've always worked outside our home and inside during Covid days. My husband is a great hands-on dad and has taken equal responsibility and I put it down to how we, how we came to have our family.' Um, I've been listening to you from Cork in Ireland for over five years and you've enjoyed me on many a walk, cooking dinner, driving to Dublin, etc. A great recommendation on the Susie Steiner books. That was from Fee, actually. I gobbled gobbled up the first two really quickly and then had to wait a week for the library to get in number three. Uh, Well, there's a satisfied customer in Cork in Ireland. That's Mary. Thank you for that, Mary. And the book I've been banging on about, uh, I finally finished it this morning, uh, At the Table by Claire powell need to make sure i've called her other names in the past but it's definitely powell um really do recommend that it's it's a short book it's in paperback you'll love it get it get it in make it part of your life if you possibly can um tina says uh, her emails headlined third time lucky i've been emailing the wrong bloody address i finally got it right says tina get kathy burke on to talk about her new podcast if you haven't listened make sure you do there's other stuff, but I've forgotten. I need two HRT patches some days to remember. Many thanks, Tina. Right, OK, Tina. I feel your pain. Uh, I've never had a two-patch day. Uh, actually, that's not true. I think probably I just forgot to take one off and then, yes, I probably have had loads of two-patch days. Um, but even if you haven't had one, you've probably felt like you were needing, needing one. Um, Rachel says, I'm interested by Fee's recollection of singing A Whiter Shade of Pale at school. And I'm thinking it odd that the lyrics made no sense. I wonder if this is partly because at school we spent so much time singing hymns and the words didn't make any sense there either. I loved and can still remember the words of many of them and understand them much better now but no one ever talked to us about what we were singing as children, which probably helped pop songwriters to get away with stringing meaningless words together without any requirement to make sense for us later on. Um, That's an interesting point, that, Rachel. Thank you very much. Um, Let's talk about the coronation, because some people are. Um, This is from Jennifer, who I suspect would not really consider herself a monarchist. Uh, Thank God you've changed that music says Jennifer. It was startling. My world would be so much better if I didn't have to suddenly leap to my device, sometimes from the other end of the room, to fast forward through those irritating shouty bits. OK, Jennifer. Right. um, I'm writing today in response to your coronation special. Yes, this was the news yesterday that Fee and I only received ourselves yesterday before she had to go home ill. Uh, this was that we are going to get permission to do a coronation day program uh, from a roof near a rooftop near the Abbey itself, and uh, this is an opportunity uh, in our case, I think, to talk in an informed, but we hope. Slightly irreverent way about what will take place on that day, May the 6th. Um, Not everybody's a monarchist, and you certainly don't have to be. Uh, Once again, says Jennifer, I'm struck by the claims that British commentators make of these ceremonial occasions. They go on and on about the vast number of people watching from abroad. Some claims can be as high as 50% of the world's population. It's ludicrous says Jennifer. Figures aside, and let's assume many millions do tune in, the commentators seem to interpret that viewing as proof of admiration for royal institutions and customs. Who are these millions of admiring, envious foreigners? They're unlikely to be European, Russian, Chinese, Indian, American or Asian. Are they from Canada, wonders Jennifer, I suspect they're a figment of someone's bygone empire imagination. I for one always watch these pageants but always view them with absolute bewilderment at the British people's ability and willingness to celebrate such such incredible displays of power and privilege for so little return. It's all quite incomprehensible to me in my sprawling Australian bungalow, says Jennifer. Mm. Yeah, I'm not suggesting for one minute that everyone who listens, uh, even to us on Coronation Day, will be a fully paid-up royal fan. Um, but that's, can I dare I say, that's sort of part of the fun, that you, you don't have to be. Um, you can just be a part of it. And um, we're very grateful to Times Radio for letting us be a small part of the coverage here on the station on uh, the big day itself. And whether you support it or not, there's no denying that the day itself will be quite big. Uh, just because many of us will not have ever seen a coronation before and some of us will almost certainly never see another one. So um, let's just go with it in that spirit. Um, We have been talking about how difficult it is uh, to write a funny book Uh, and lots of you have been kind enough to uh, let us know about works of fiction that you really did find funny. Uh, I think Apples Never Fall by Leanne Moriarty fits the bill, um, says this listener, Elizabeth. Uh, Didn't you have her on your show in the other place? Yes, we did. She was great. I think it's a great story and keeps you guessing but it was a book that also made me laugh out loud frequently. I listened to it on Audible and it was read very well. Yeah, interesting that, Elizabeth, because I have just listened. I've only just listened to Big Little Lies and I listened to it rather than reading it. And I agree, it was brilliantly read. And there's something about Leanne Moriarty's writing that really lends itself well to being read out loud. Um, So, yeah, I agree. Um, I love her stuff and she's a really nice woman. Um, This is from Donna. Um, I've been tempted to write to you both many times and have constructed long, wry, amusing yet deeply intelligent pieces in my head about all sorts of stuff menopause, imposter syndrome and being an overweight, overwrought middle-aged woman however, I've decided just eventually to keep it simple and just stick to books when it comes to funny, fantastic books I would recommend Nina Stibby, I think it's Stibby, it could be Stib I think it's Stibby, and Catherine Heine as the women for me About three years ago, I found myself quite heartbroken in a way that I can only remember feeling as a teenager. It was horrible. And I knew that my diet of miserable, anguished literature just wasn't going to cut it. I needed froth, I needed fun, I needed to laugh and find my mojo somewhere under the sofa along with a fur ball the cat had chucked up. Nina's semi-autobiographical novels about the joys and horrors of growing up in a village in Leicestershire in the 70s and 80s are truly marvellous and made me chuckle out loud on the bus. And Catherine Heine's standard deviation was a cool tale about a sophisticated New York family dealing with the mess, incongruity and, frankly, very unsophisticated flotsam and jetsam of life. Both auto- authors are deceptively easy to read and will put a spring in your step. Yet their books are also clever, wise and wonderful. Come to Dublin soon, says Donna. Oh, I haven't been to Dublin for ages, I definitely should. Um, thank you for the invitation. And Ruth says, I'm sure with humour it's all a matter of taste, but I found Hunting Unicorns by Bella Pollen in a charity shop. And I remember a few proper laugh out loud moments there you go there's another rock solid recommendation for a funny book and um, hope maybe you can dig out some of those um, over the course of the Easter weekend And so to our guest today now fee and I recorded the interview uh, just before uh, she became a bit unwell so um, you don't hear that much of her in this interview because she was she was not at her best actually poor thing she was really she was battling on though I was impressed uh, it was Dr. Nicola Fox was our guest and she is really significant actually. She's British-born, and she now has what she calls the best job on the planet. She's only the second woman in history to be named Head of Science at NASA. Now, that's obviously a colossal achievement, uh, but we should say, and that's why we have her on the programme and we're so excited about her, she's British. She's from Hitchin in Hertfordshire. She used to be the person in charge of the Parker Solar Probe mission. Um, This was the mission which aimed to gather the first ever samples of a star's atmosphere by flying to within four miles of the surface of the sun. Now, I do talk to her about infinity and beyond and everything else related to her career. But we do start by talking about her origins. And I asked her how often she got back to her home in Hertfordshire.
3: I typically go once a year or so, but... um a little bit more right now. So yes, I'm actually going to be there for Easter.
2: Great. Okay. So it's still very much your, your home. That's where you're from?
3: Yes. Yes. And my, my parents still live there.
2: Okay. Brilliant. Um, tell us then, uh, your official title is NASA Chief Scientist, which I think is something that, if I'm honest, doesn't mean a great deal to most people in Britain. So what is your day job?
3: So my my official title is actually um, the Associate Administrator for Science Mission Directorate. So I'm kind of the head of science is sort of how we shorten it. Um, My day job is really crazy. <laughs> um, it's taking care of, of over 100 NASA missions, um, about 50 of which we're in the process of designing and building and over 70 are actually um, flying. So there's a, a lot of missions to take care of. There's a big research portfolio that, um, you know, that supports all the scientists that do all the great work with our missions. Um, and there's, you know, running a, a, a large science organization. So there's budget and there's, you know, lots of documents to read and sign and lots of, uh, we do a lot of international partnerships and partnerships with other agencies in the US and uh, partnerships with commercial companies. So it's just a, a lot of, it's a very, very varied job. I have to say no, no day is ever the same.
2: Right. Okay. Now you're not the first woman to have held this position, are you?
3: No, no, I'm not.
2: Who was the, who was your predecessor?
3: Uh, my predecessor was Mary Cleve, uh, who was an astronaut. Uh, so um, following in uh, big, big, big shoes to fill.
2: And you're not an astronaut. Um, your career has taken a very, a very different trajectory. Um, can you explain the difference between your NASA career and that of somebody who would have been or had been an astronaut?
3: Yes, I wish I had been an astronaut. I'll just start by saying that. But um, but no, I I, uh, I came up literally through the science ranks. Um, you know, I did my PhD and then I did a postdoc at NASA's Goddard Space Flight Center, which is in Maryland in the US. Um, I was there for about three years. And then I went to the Johns Hopkins University Applied Physics Laboratory, um, where I worked on a, a host of different NASA missions. Um, the uh, The biggest one being Parker Solar Probe, which is the mission that flies really, really close to the sun. I was the project scientist for that. Um, and then about three weeks after we launched Parker Solar Probe, I um, kind of relaunched my own um, career. and went down to NASA headquarters in Washington, D.C., where I was the um, division head for uh, the heliophysics missions. So the heliophysics division. Um, and then, as you know, just a few weeks ago, took this um, Fabulous job as the Associate Administrator for Science.
4: And is it at all frustrating having had an ambition or, you know, a desire to be in space, to be the person who's working on the ground?
3: No, not at all. Um, It's just wonderful. I mean, it's... you. People that work for NASA, we have this amazing sort of shared purpose and shared goal, which is just to do amazing things and to push the boundaries of science and push the boundaries of technology. and And so, I was actually out this week um, at the announcement for the new astronauts that will go on Artemis 2, and I'm almost tearing up. It was such an amazing experience to be to be there and to be with these incredible people who are going to uh, going to go do these amazing things, fly around the moon, uh, test the all of the systems that we'll be using to actually put uh, people back on the moon um, just a few years after that. So no, um, yes, I think I think so many people grow up thinking, dreaming they'd like to be an astronaut and they'd like to go to space. But um, there's only a the very, very few, the best of the best of the best that get to do that. And I can tell you, my I'm not in any physical shape to be an astronaut, sadly. <laughs> um,
2: well, no, don't do yourself down. Um, well, actually, I suppose I should ask the question, what physical requirements are necessary in an astronaut?
3: Oh, they are. They are the fittest people uh, you can imagine um, just uh, there was a show on um, in England a few years ago I think so you want to be an astronaut and if you uh, sort of think about all of the things that that they had to go through all of those tests all of the challenges all of the things they had to do that's that's standard for for you know an astronaut it's 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 mental um, you know the the kind of being in the right headspace to to be able to be an astronaut have to be super physically fit and super smart
2: Yes, I mean, the crew of of Artemis are in their 40s, aren't they? Um, Yes. It's not actually a job. Well, could it be done by somebody in their 20s or would they simply be too inexperienced or, I I don't know, just maybe too psychologically immature?
3: Um, I don't know. You know, that's a really interesting question. Um, But, you know, the... The astronauts, there's a very diverse group, the, the Astronaut Corps, um, and there's a, a lot of more senior astronauts that stay and train the younger astronauts. So I, I think it's just about picking the right person with the right, you know, just the right skill set and the right profile and the right mix because you're picking a crew, um, which is something the administrator talked about is, you know, you're really picking a team that are going to rely on one another and they're there for one another and they have really, really complementary skill sets. And so it's really about picking the right people for that. That particular mission.
2: Uh, sorry, I mean, which psychological flaws would absolutely rule you out?
3: Oh, I don't know. I would think, well, certainly a fear of small spaces. Um, you know, astronauts have to, have to <laughs> be in point. Seriously, I mean, if, um, that's <laughs> yeah. that's that's definitely. Um, sometimes you see the 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 crew compartments, and you think, wow. I mean, look at. Look, look back in time at, at like the Gemini and the Mercury capsules um, that the first, first people went into space in and they're tiny. So uh, that would definitely be a, a, a deal breaker.
4: So as you've mentioned, you've got an incredibly full in-trade to be dealing with at the moment. Which out of all of the projects that are coming up do you think has the most relevance to your average person on this planet?
3: Wow, that's like asking me to pick my favorite child. Um, Let's go for it. (laughs) They all, I mean, they they all have... The great thing about the NASA fleet is they they really all work together to to just explore and to do great things. Um, You know, I think we have a lot of missions that are focusing sort of on our planet and protecting our planet and looking at how climate is changing. Um, And so that's probably got the most direct relevance. We also have missions that are studying the sun and telling us, you know, what activity is coming towards us here on the planet and what could affect our technology through space weather Um, and then. We have a mission that's going to be returning samples from an asteroid um, so that the, it comes back. The samples get re-delivered to us here at Earth uh, September 24th of this year. And it's bringing back um, samples of a carbaceous asteroid. And so this is an asteroid that's been around uh, even before our solar system or as our solar solar system was forming. And so we think in these samples, it's going to have some of the sort of precursors of um, of you know, our solar system. So how things like, you know, the signatures of how planets form and and maybe how our planet was able to sustain water. Um, and so, you know, that's a highly relevant mission also, uh, returning stuff from an asteroid.
2: Uh, working for NASA, it's not for short termists, is it? Because it can take decades for projects to come to fruition.
3: Yes, um, we usually say, you know, the the space business is not for the faint of heart. Um, Everything we do is really tough. Um, And so The mission I spoke about earlier, the Parker Solar Probe, was 60 years um, from the first time somebody said, wow, that would be a really good idea to do that mission to actually launching was 60 years. And it's just because you have to mature the technology and you have to, you know, have all the right tools to be able to do the job. And and we had to create materials that didn't even exist um, uh, 60 years ago. And if you think about, um, you know, just if you wanted to to make uh, it so if you wanted to make a phone call that's let's, let's take an easy analogy and you, mm-hmm. you know you, you had a rotary dial phone and that was yeah. all you had and now you hold in the palm of your hand more technology than would have It would have been city blocks worth of buildings of hardware to do what you can do with the the phone in your hand. And so just thinking about the jump in technology, the miniaturization of everything, the lightweighting, all that kind of maturity. That's what we needed to be able to fly some of these missions.
2: So you are working on projects right now. Uh, There are NASA representatives hard at it as we speak. Uh, who's, well, they won't see their life's work, will they? It will happen probably long after they're dead.
3: Well, for, for some people, yes. Um, you know, if, if you're later in your career and you're starting a mission, then then you do run the risk maybe of not seeing it. But Gene Parker was the inspiration for the Parker Solar Probe. And he was with us at the launch and he got to see all of the first data come back. So um, it's not, I mean, there, there are a lot of people that do get to see their, their life's work come to fruition. Most missions take
0: Get 50% off your first
1: card at MoonPig.com. MoonPig.com Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN.
5: When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy.
2: You're listening to Off Air, and our guest today is Dr. Nicola Fox, Head of Science at NASA. Uh, we asked, Nicola, if anybody at NASA had objected a little bit to a British person getting the top job.
3: I haven't had any, any objection. I, I think um, I, I've been claimed, I think, by the, by the US. I've been told many times I'm, I'm, I'm a US US now. So,
2: Are you a, a US citizen? Yes, I am. Okay but Hitchin I have to say still very much wants to identify with you so um, you're not going to get off that lightly. (laughs) Uh, Has has anybody in your career actually said to you or even hinted in your direction that you couldn't achieve what you wanted to achieve?
3: Um, No I've I've really had mostly a a very nurturing um, time. I you know there were some people maybe at, at, when i was at college that uh, i i suffered a little bit from impo- imposter syndrome when i was at college and the the worry about you know if you ask a question maybe you'll look stupid um and you know so you just don't ask the questions um but that was that was about all is that
2: your advice then that there is no such thing as a stupid question
3: absolutely and i'm i i work a lot with um with, with particularly young, younger women, um, you know, maybe, maybe having some challenges and I'll, I'll always be the one who, who asks the, the dumb question, you know, the one that you, that you think this, I'm just going to ask this because when I ask it, everybody else is going to feel totally comfortable asking their questions. And so, um, you know, yes, there's no dumb question. Uh, if you, being a scientist is really about asking questions. It's about wanting to know more and to have, you know, a, a curiosity to want to know how things work or how things how things came about or you know just just want to know more about things so asking questions is incredibly important
4: and do you think that you had that curiosity right from the get-go there is this lovely yes. story that you tell about your dad showing you how the solar system worked using what was it objects in a hotel room on a holiday somewhere
3: yes in spain mm-hmm
4: Yeah. Can you remember which objects he used for which planets? (laughs) (laughs) Um,
3: I remember there was definitely the lamp on the bedside table was the sun. And then there was a couple of water glasses uh, for the the, um, Earth and and the moon moving around. And then I think it was, you know, probably like a wedding ring or something that he he found uh, around the hotel room that that he used for for different planets to sort of put them in the the right place. Um, So just random objects. There was probably a teddy bear in there as well.
4: So, I think we all have this incredible curiosity, don't we, about space and how everything works when we're children. But then I think something makes us feel that unless we're super clever, we can't carry on with that curiosity. Does that make sense to you? It seems to then belong to people who choose those subjects at school. We leave it all to them. And that seems a bit of a shame, actually, doesn't it?
3: Yes. But if you actually look across a NASA mission, um, there there are many, many, many very diverse careers paths that that can come in to work on a NASA mission. You know, we have people that do our budgets, we have lawyers, we have people that do our schedules, we have people that do all that incredible artwork that you see, we have people that do all the the communications that tell the stories of, of the missions that we, we have. You know, you have all kinds of different engineers. You, I mean, there's a, a very wide-ranging group of people that work at NASA that actually implement these missions. So even if you don't want to be a, you know, a space physicist or an aeronautical engineer, there are many other career paths that can bring you into into NASA missions.
2: Are you remotely concerned that space appears to be a place for not just white men, but incredibly rich white men? I mean, I'm talking about Branson, Bezos elon musk um it does appear to be almost a playground of the mega rich male or am i being a bit over dramatic
3: no i I mean, the, the, the great thing about um, having all these sort of new commercial interests in space is it's really pushed our ability to do more with space. Uh, we really value our commercial partnerships um, as, of course, our international partnerships. But, you know, if you think about how many launches we have, um, the, the really the opening up getting science to space, getting people to space even, Um, you know, with the commercial crew that have been launching up to the International Space Station, as well, of course, as our wonderful Artemis astronauts that were just selected. So I really think that it's driven technology and it's lowered the boundaries of of what we can do in space.
2: And you are actually, I think, NASA is cooperating with Elon Musk's company to make a, a transporter or a moon lander piece of equipment, a vehicle?
3: Yes, uh, we have a a number of partnerships with uh, many different companies doing different ways of getting to to land on the moon, to to take crew into space. And so, yes, they're they're really, really valuable partnerships.
4: And what about space law? Would it be fair to say that space is governed almost in the same way that the world is governed, which is definitely uh, more power to the richer nations?
3: Well, there's, there's international space treaties. There's the peaceful use of outer space. I mean, there's many, many policies that, that govern how we, how we use space. Um, and we are partnering with a lot of you know, emerging partnerships, new countries that are coming into, into the space business. So um, we're, really, we're really working to open up space for, for everybody.
2: Uh, would it be um, in any way possible for you to have had the career you've had if you'd stayed in Britain? I mean the answer is is plainly no. But um, do you feel that you, the US is simply a better place for women with your sort of qualifications?
3: Um, well, I'll, I'll say that the new head of um, space at ESA is also a woman, um, Dr. Carol okay. Mundell, um was recently announced. She's a wonderful, wonderful woman. Um, we've formed a great friendship on our on our first meeting, um, and uh, so there are just different paths and different ways to to get to 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 places that you want to go and and honestly when I set out I didn't think I'd ever be the head of science at NASA so um you know you you, you I think you take your you take your steps in life one step at a time and and then you find out where you're going to end up so if I'd stayed in the UK you know I probably would have taken a different path but um I, and I so I would not have been the head of science at NASA obviously but there are different different paths and different different things for everybody.
2: Yeah, and effectively, you were at a were you at a meeting in Alaska, and you sort of got a a pat on the shoulder, and someone said, "Look, you know, do you fancy coming to work for NASA?" Was it really that simple?
3: Um, (laughs) So that's actually true. I was at a meeting in Alaska, and a scientist said, "Would you be interested in applying for a postdoc?" Um, I actually did not know that was even an option for me at the time so of course i said yes that would be wonderful and then then you realize how complicated the application process is it, it isn't just a, a, qu- a quick oh yeah that sounds great i'll buy my ticket um you know you have to write a proposal and and get lots of letters of support and various things and you put, put together an application package which was quite an experience in itself i have to say um, but uh, but so I, I put in the application and i, I was selected but but i if it, if that had not happened I wouldn't have even known that there was an opportunity to put an application in.
2: But you obviously, when you get an offer like that, you're not going to say you're not going to say, oh, no, no, thanks. (laughs) You're just not, (laughs) are you?
3: No, I'm a bit busy this week. Try me next week. No, not at all. I jumped at the chance. Yes.
4: Yeah. I
2: mean, I've watched you speak and you have a really nice, very winning line in self-deprecation. And I don't know whether that's because you're British or whether you're female or whether actually when you work in an industry like yours you you do move amongst some of the most gifted and incredible people around don't you it's it's you're just surrounded by greatness
3: yes that's true um and that's actually the thing I think I enjoy the most um about my NASA NASA career and obviously my you know NASA mission career um is working in these incredibly high performing teams and at, at the applied physics lab working on Parker solar probe just seeing how uh, all of the team members are there for one another and you know so so rather like i said about the astronauts and and having the the matching skill sets and being a crew you know all of our nasa mission teams are kind of like that so being in the clean room with solar probe right before launch and seeing all of the different engineers just adapting for one another. You know, you need to run this test at this time. That's okay. I'll come in and do my test at four in the morning or whatever. But because when you're down to the wire, that's what you do. Um, And just seeing the, the, just the sort of the nurturing way nasa teams work um is is just really incredible and and that that goes all the way into nasa headquarters the heliophysics division was just a wonderful place to work with a great group of individuals and now sort of taking that next step up uh over the whole science mission directorate and just seeing these incredibly gifted scientists and engineers and and policy people and and you know just everybody that works in in our team to to make these NASA missions happen
4: and do you think working in space and with these huge concepts and and also aiming for positivity and knowledge does that do something to your own psyche where you find it easier not to sweat the small stuff
3: um I think I'm getting better at that. Um there there are days when I come home, you know, and something small and trivial bothers you and then you just think, Yeah, this is really small and trivial in the great scheme of things. <laughs> but but you know, in the moment it, it's not small and trivial to you. You know, you've stubbed your toe or something and the entire world shrinks to the, the pain of in your toe. Um but um I, I try and I do try and surf a little bit uh, above it, um, but doesn't mean I don't get bothered by the small things anymore.
2: It must be incredible for your family, um, you know, when, when people move on from their hometown and go on to live their life and maybe their parents or other friends and neighbours meet up and they might say, what's Nicola up to these days? I mean, it's not bad for them to be able to say, oh, oh, haven't you heard? She's the head of science at NASA. I mean, they're going to win every time, aren't they?
3: <laughs> um, they're, they are both very proud. Yes. Dr
2: Nicola Fox, it really was a great privilege to be able to talk to her and just hear a little bit about her her career and how she got there and that just happened to be at that meeting in Alaska and got a tap on the shoulder and someone said, look come on, come and work for us at NASA. It must have been quite a moment, and obviously it was an invitation she was never going to turn down. Uh, Thank you very much for listening, and get well soon, Fee, and we will reconvene, well, we'll all reconvene in a week or so's time, but Fee will be back here on Monday and live on Times Radio with Ed Vasey. Have a very, very happy Easter.
4: Well done for getting to the end of another episode of Off Air with Jane Garvey and Fee Glover. Our Times Radio producer is Rosie Cutler and the podcast executive producer is Henry Tribe. And don't forget, there is even more of us every afternoon on Times Radio. It's Monday to Thursday, three till five. You can pop us on when you're pottering around the house or heading out in the car on the school run or running a bank. Thank you for joining us,
2: and we hope you can join us again on off air very soon. Don't be so silly.
4: Money go bank.
2: I know, ladies the lady. A lady listener. i sorry.
0: Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com.
1: Moonpig.com
5: When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do,